Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 24 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. In this episode, we'll be discussing the latest news in the world of freedom of information and the latest FOI decisions from September to November 2010. These include decisions from the Information Commissioner as well as the Information Tribunal, or the First Tier Tribunal Information Rights, about when information is held for the purposes of FOI, time limits for academy schools, Section 12 and the costs of compliance, pay negotiations information, applying the personal data exemption, and disclosure of commercially sensitive information. Before we go on to discuss these decisions, let's just pause to reflect on the latest developments in the world of freedom of information. On the 7th of January, the Ministry of Justice announced plans to change the FOI regime in a number of ways. The scope of FOI will be extended so that the Association of Chief Police Officers, UCAS and the Financial Ombudsman Service will be brought under the FOI umbrella as soon as possible, although no date has been given. This implements the previous Labour government's proposals announced last year. As well as these organisations, a range of further organisations are going to be consulted with a view to adding them to the list of public authorities. These include the Advertising Standards Authority, the Law Society and the Bar Council, the British Standards Institute, examination boards where they're not already covered, the Local Government Association and the NHS Confederation. A whole list of other quangos and public bodies are listed on the Ministry of Justice website. Despite pledges in the coalition partners' election manifestos, it appears that there are no plans for utility companies and network rail to be added to the list of FOI bodies. The coalition government will also commence various provisions from the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act, which was enacted by the Labour government last year. These include amending the Public Records Act to reduce the 30-year rule so that historical records are made available at the National Archives as well as other places of deposit after 20 years. This will be transitional over a 10-year period at a rate of two years' worth of records being transferred per year, with a view to commencing the process in 2013. A further provision which is going to be commenced from the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act are the changes to the Section 37 exemption. At present, communications with the royal family are exempt from disclosure under Section 37, but subject to a public interest test. In future, public interest will be removed so that communications with the monarch and the next two in line to the throne, Prince Charles and Prince William present, will be subject to an absolute exemption. The lifespan of the exemption will change from 30 years to 20 years or 5 years after the death of the relevant member of the royal family, whichever is later. Again, this move has been criticised by the Campaign for Freedom of Information, saying at a time when it seems increasingly Prince Charles has been interfering, according to them, in various planning decisions and other matters, there's a public interest in seeing that information. The government has also announced that the Act will be amended in the Freedom Bill, which will be published in February, to ensure public authorities proactively release data in a way that allows businesses, non-profit organisations and others to reuse information for social and commercial purposes. 
This is a blow to those, especially in local authorities, who think that FOI is being used too much by companies for commercial purposes and shows that this government, just like the previous government, is firmly behind commercial exploitation of information released under FOI. On the role of the Information Commissioner, the government has stated that the Freedom Bill will seek to remove the requirement that the Commissioner seeks the Secretary of State's consent in relation to the appointment of staff, their pay and pensions, and will also limit the Commissioner's term to five years and will include a greater role for Parliament to appoint the Information Commissioner. There will also be provisions for the Commissioner to set charges for certain services independently and to issue statutory guidance without need for a sign-off by the Secretary of State. Finally, the Ministry of Justice announced that the Justice Select Committee is to be tasked with the post-legislative scrutiny role of FOI and to see how it's being implemented. On the same day as the Ministry of Justice announcement, a speech by Nick Clegg, the Deputy Prime Minister on Civil Liberties, had much to say about FOI and access to information more broadly. He announced the government's plans for a public data corporation which will, in his words, bring existing government bodies together into one organisation responsible for disseminating a wealth of data. According to the Guardian's article recently, the corporation will release data from the Ordnance Survey, the Met Office, the Land Registry and perhaps even Companies House. The Cabinet Office indicated that it was setting up the corporation in its business plan published in November last year, in which it said the target date was April of this year as the date for its creation. The work is being done by the Treasury and the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills. So it seems that freedom of information is here to stay, but also the duty on public authorities to make information available in a way in which it can be commercially exploited seems to have the backing of the government. It's worth remembering that freedom of information has not done away with other legal rights of access to information. One such right is contained in Section 15 of the Audit Commission Act 1998. This gives a right to any persons interested to inspect the accounts of a local authority as well as other named organisations, for example the NHS, at the time of the annual audit for a limited period of 20 working days. This right extends to all books, deeds, contracts, bills, vouchers and receipts relating to the accounts as well as allowing the taking of copies of the same. Section 15 came under judicial scrutiny in the High Court last year. In a case involving Viola, a waste management company, and Nottinghamshire County Council, Viola brought an action for judicial review asking the High Court to block Nottinghamshire County Council's decision to release details of its multi-million pound waste management contract as well as invoices paid by the Council. This followed a request by a local waste management campaigner under the Audit Commission Act. Viola argued that inspection should not be permitted as the contract and the invoices did not relate to the local authorities' accounts. This argument was rejected by Mr Justice Cranxton, who ruled that the words relating to in section 15 were sufficiently flexible to accommodate the documents in question, including the contracts and invoices. Viola also argued that a wide interpretation of Section 15 would lead to confidential information in the contract and invoices being disclosed. The judge ruled that commercial confidentiality was not relevant under Section 15, which only contained an exception for personal information. 
This decision caused concern amongst the private sector who saw it as opening the back door to allowing competitors to gain access to commercially sensitive information using the Audit Commission Act, especially where it would be exempt under the Freedom of Information Act or the Environmental Information Regulations. On appeal by Viola to the Court of Appeal, the door was not fully closed, but certainly the chain was put on. In Viola and Nottinghamshire County Council and others 2010, the Court of Appeal agreed with the judge at first instance that the types of documents which could be accessed under the 1998 Act were very wide. However, it held that Section 15 had to be read so as to preserve the confidentiality of commercially sensitive information. In reaching its decision that the documents were protected from disclosure, the court relied on the provisions of the European Convention on Human Rights. The convention recognises that everyone, both individuals and companies, are entitled to peaceful enjoyment of their possessions. This is set out within Article 1 of the First Protocol. The Court of Appeal held that valuable commercially confidential information falls within the concept of possessions under Article 1. Therefore, the 1998 Act must be interpreted in the light of the right to peaceful enjoyment. The Council had to perform a public interest balancing exercise to justify maintaining confidentiality or disclosing the requested documents under Section 15. In the light of the above, the Court held that Viola's financial model and profit margins were protected from disclosure and also commented that the pricing mechanisms and key performance indicators originally disclosed were also the types of confidential information protected under the Convention and disclosure could not be justified. It acknowledged that there is a public interest in transparency, particularly in the use of public money, but on the other hand, there's a strong public interest in the maintenance of valuable commercial confidential information. The effect of this case is that members of the public cannot access valuable commercially confidential information under the 1998 Act unless there is a specific public interest in granting access which outweighs the private interest in keeping it confidential. This brings the 1998 Act more in line with the Freedom of Information Act and the Environmental Information Regulations under which genuinely confidential information does not have to be disclosed but the exemption is subject to a public interest test. In October the Information Commissioner's Office published a list of organisations that are being monitored because it appears that they are not meeting the requirement to respond to Freedom of Information requests on time. There are 33 authorities on the first monitoring list and these have either been the subject of six or more complaints of delay in the last six months, exceeded the time by a significant margin on at least one occasion or appear to respond in time to fewer than 85% of requests. The Information Commissioner has said he will monitor the authorities for three months but may take action during this time frame if an authority's standard of compliance is revealed to be particularly poor or if it's unwilling to make the improvements necessary. It's interesting to note that out of the 33 organisations on this list, more than 55% are local authorities. The Commissioner will publish a quarterly list of the public authorities it's monitoring. For the latest updates, go to his website's Monitoring Compliance page. Earlier this year, the Freedom of Information Act was extended to academy schools by the Academies Act 2010. Under the new Freedom of Information 
Time for Compliance with Request Regulations 2010, Academy schools have the same time limits as other schools for responding to requests. This means 20 working days, disregarding any working day that is not a school day, or 60 working days, whichever is the sooner. According to Section 3.2 of the Freedom of Information Act, FOI applies to information which is held by a public authority or held on its behalf at the time the public authority receives the request for information. But when is information held? This issue was examined by the First Tier Tribunal in British Union for the Abolition of Vivisection and the Information Commissioner and Newcastle University. The British Union submitted a request to Newcastle University for information set out in the project licences issued under the Animals Scientific Procedures Act 1986. This governed the primate research at the university which had been written up in three specific papers which had been published by professors within the university. Amongst other things, the university argued that it did not hold the licences. It said that they were held by the named veterinary surgeon pursuant to his statutory role under the 1986 Act. At the preliminary hearing, the tribunal had to decide whether the information was held by the university at the time it was requested. It noted that FOI contains no general definition of what it means to hold information, but the Section 3.2 states that information is held if it's held by the authority otherwise than on behalf of another person or if it is held by another person on behalf of the authority. The tribunal noted, according to Section 3.2, that an authority cannot evade the requirements of the Act by having its information held on its behalf by some other person who is not a public authority. Conversely, it is considered that Section 1 would not apply merely because information is contained in a document that happens to be physically on the authority's premises. There must be an appropriate connection between the information and the authority so that it can be properly said that the information is held by the authority. In this case, the university submitted that the statutory regime under the Animal Scientific Procedures Act placed personal responsibility upon project license holders and certificate holders, and this had the consequence that the requested information was held solely by them and not by the governing body of the university. The Commissioner supported this argument, saying also that the information was ring-fenced so that only individuals with statutory roles could access it. The tribunal ruled, whilst the statutory regime was a material consideration, it did not have the consequences contended for by the university. The personal responsibilities laid on individuals by the Asper regime are an important feature of the system of control since they avoid the danger of dilution that would result if the responsibilities were assigned merely to an institution. But this striking feature of the regulatory regime should not be allowed to crowd out the larger picture. The tribunal noted that animal research was a very substantial part of the university's activities carried out for university purposes on university premises. The grants that were made to fund it were grants made to the university. The confidential information involved was generated within the university. The licenses were physically held by a Professor Frecknell as the named veterinary surgeon for the university's animal research by arrangement with Dr Hogan, to whom Professor Flecknell was responsible.
Dr. Hogan was the certificate holder not in his personal capacity, but precisely because as registrar he represented the governing body of the university. In that capacity he held the information in the project licences and the tribunal's judgment was that the governing body held the information through him for the purposes of freedom of information. This is an important judgment because it shows that public authorities need to analyse very carefully who is holding the information and in what capacity they are holding the information Often, if they are an employee of the organisation and they have a role within the organisation, then they will be holding the information at least on behalf of the public authority. Sometimes the applicant will disagree with the public authority and insist that information is held even though the public authority says that the information was deleted. In Edwards and the Information Commissioner, a tribunal decision dated the 21st of October 2010, the tribunal gives a bit more guidance as to how far the public authority has to go to prove that it does not hold the information. The applicant made a request for, amongst other things, data relating to a drug test carried out by King's College London. The college stated that it did not hold the data in question and other relevant data had been routinely destroyed according to its usual practices. The applicant was dissatisfied with this response and complained to the Commissioner, insisting that the information was held. The Tribunal agreed with the Commissioner's decision that there was no evidence of dishonesty on the part of the College and no evidence that the information was held. The Tribunal reminded itself, relying on a previous decision involving Linda Bromley and the Information Commissioner and the Environment Agency, that in order to be satisfied that particular information is not held, it's not necessary for the public authority to prove to a point of certainty that this is so. Rather, the matter is to be determined on the balance of probabilities. Thus, the tribunal must ask itself if it's more likely than not that the information is held. The tribunal recently said that it has the power to strike out academic appeals. This will come as good news to public authorities who are often faced with persistent requesters who insist on taking matters to appeal even though they have already received the information. In Edwards and the Information Commissioner and the Ministry of Justice, the Tribunal exercised its power recently to strike out a party's case under the Tribunal Procedure First Tier Tribunal Rules 2009. This was a case where the appeal was in effect academic as the requested material had already been given to the applicant. Section 12 of the Act and the Freedom of Information Fees Regulations mean that when a public authority wishes to refuse a request on grounds that to comply with it would be over the appropriate limit, it can only take account of the costs of doing four things at a rate of £25 an hour. This includes determining whether the information is held, locating it, retrieving it and extracting it. Section 16 of the Act imposes a duty on the public authority to ensure that advice and assistance is offered to the applicant so far as it is reasonably practicable to do so. Section 16 subsection 2 provides that if a public authority has complied with the Section 45 Code of Practice then it's deemed to comply with the duty of advice and assistance. The Section 45 Code states at paragraph 14 that when considering whether a request is over the appropriate limit, a public authority should consider providing an indication of what, if any information, could be provided within the cost ceiling and should also consider advising the applicant that by reforming or refocusing their request, the information could be supplied at a lower or no fee.
Previous tribunal decisions have ruled that where advice and assistance is not given and where the applicant has not been allowed to reform or refocus his request, then the cost estimate cannot be said to be reasonable. If you're interested, look at the decision in Robert Brown and the Information Commissioner and the National Archives, which we discussed in episode 9. In Dorothy Cooksey and the Information Commissioner and Greater Manchester Police, the information request concerned documents relating to a murder investigation undertaken between 1992 and 1995. Greater Manchester Police refused to provide the requested information on the basis that aggregating the requests, the cost would be over the £450 limit. The Commissioner upheld this decision and the Tribunal agreed, although it did criticise the authority for its poor records management. It also made some important points about the fees provisions and the duty to advise and assist. The Tribunal was satisfied that the police had properly considered whether there was an alternative method of searching for the information which would avoid the £450 limit being exceeded. However, it agreed that it is only if an alternative exists that is so obvious that disregarding it renders the estimate unreasonable. The appellant had suggested that some alternative sources could be used, but there was no evidence to support these suggestions and the tribunal concluded that as they were speculative, it could not accept that they were sufficiently obvious to render the cost estimate unreasonable. The cost estimate was based on having to search many containers to find the information. The appellant also argued that there could reasonably have been a search up to the cost limit and that any information found in relation to her original request, even if only partial, would be useful. The tribunal sympathised with this sentiment but said that it did not feel that this was the correct approach under Section 12. If the cost limit is engaged, the tribunal found that the effect of Section 12 is to disapply the duty to comply with the information request. There was no need to search up to the cost limit. Section 36.2b allows information to be withheld if disclosure would or would be likely to prejudice free and frank provision of advice. It's a qualified exemption and so the decision to withhold is subject to a public interest test. In Public and Commercial Services Union and the Information Commissioner and the Ministry of Justice, decided by the First Year Tribunal on the 9th of December, the PCS requested information about pay negotiations between itself and the National Offender Management Service, which is known as NOMS. The request was refused on the grounds that disclosure would prejudice free and frank advice under Section 36. NOMS argued that the public interest for officials and ministers to be able to consider fully all options on changing the pay and grading of staff would be stifled if the withheld information were to be released, and this outweighed the public interest in accountability and transparency. The Information Commissioner considered that the exemption was engaged. He went on to consider the public interest factors. The withheld information concerned the tactics and the stance to be taken in negotiations over pay and conditions. Disclosure would, in his opinion, cause an imbalance in those negotiations and was contrary to the public interest, even after the negotiations had been concluded, as the information had remained relevant and sensitive up to the time, approximately four years after the events in question, when NOMS had refused to release it. The tribunal agreed with the decision of the commissioner. This is an important decision for public authorities which will no doubt be the subject of many such similar requests as the effects of the public sector cuts begin to bite and there are difficult negotiations with the unions. Section 40 of the Freedom of Information Act provides an exemption from disclosure of personal data about the requester as well as that of third parties. 
With regards to the latter, the public authority must show that disclosure would breach one of the data protection principles, usually the first one. The recent tribunal decision in Bousfield and the Information Commissioner and Liverpool Women's NHS Trust concerned a refusal of a request for compromise agreements that the Trust had entered into with doctors that had been paid off or taken voluntary early retirement. The tribunal upheld the Trust's refusal and the Commissioner's decision notice on the grounds of it being personal data under Section 40, Subsection 2. In doing so, it reiterated the questions that need to be asked when applying the Section 40 exemption. This is well worth a read for those needing to remind themselves of how to deal with such requests. Requests for interview notes of disciplinary and internal investigations have been the subject of a number of commissioner and tribunal decisions. The latest tribunal decision involves a Miss Ince and the Information Commissioner. Miss Ince worked in a further education institute in Northern Ireland. She was dismissed from her employment in 1999 and had subsequently alleged on a number of occasions that her managers had been engaged in a fairly widespread fraud against the public purse. These allegations were investigated by various bodies, but no criminal or disciplinary charges were brought and the investigation was not taken any further. Miss Ince was not satisfied with these findings and in October 2007 she made a request for information from the Department of Learning in Northern Ireland with respect to her allegations of fraud at the Institute. The information she sought included a number of transcripts of certain interviews held with other employees during the fraud investigation. The Department of Learning provided some of the information but withheld the transcripts on the basis that it was third-party personal data. The Commissioner agreed with this approach and so did the Tribunal for the most part. It did though require one transcript to be disclosed where the subject had consented to disclosure. With regards to the rest of the transcripts the Tribunal found that it would not be fair for the Department of Learning to disclose the information and that disclosure would therefore breach the first data protection principle. It unanimously rejected the notion that anything said or done by a public sector employee was public information and could therefore be disclosed. It found by a majority that the disputed information in the case related to individuals' employment but was not information so directly connected with their public role that its disclosure would automatically be fair. The tribunal found that harm or distress would be caused by disclosure generally and would also be caused by Mrs Ince's own disproportionate method of pursuing her allegations which included threatening to bring private prosecutions for fraud against certain individuals. The tribunal further considered that the commissioner had given appropriate weight to the interviewee's clearly expressed objections and that they also had a reasonable expectation of privacy in respect of the transcripts. In October 2010, the Tribunal in Ferguson and the Information Commission and the Electoral Commission handed down a decision which is notable both for its commentary on the interaction between personal data and the inherent publicity of public life and for a number of distinctions it draws between types of information which, at first glance, may appear to be personal. Once again, it's well worth a read if you're dealing with requests about the activities of politicians, both local as well as national. Decisions involving contracts and tenders continue to be the subject of tribunal decisions. In the Department for Work and Pensions and the Information Commissioner, the complainant requested, amongst other things, the full text of all contracts between the Cabinet Office and ATOS Origin regarding the provision of the Government Gateway Service. This is a service which allows individuals as well as companies to pay various bills online 
including VAT as well as income tax as well as to file their tax returns online. Following directions and a pre-hearing review, the DWP disclosed much of the information apart from some clauses and schedules in the contract. In particular, it refused to disclose liability caps, performance requirements including key performance indicators, benchmarking models, the charges, the company's financial model, the change control notifications and information relating to the company's data centre where all the data was held. This was done on the basis of section 43 which provides for exemptions for trade secrets as well as commercially sensitive information. The tribunal noted that there's no definition of what is a trade secret in FOI. It considered the case of Lansing, Lind and Kerr from 1991 where the court referred to information which if disclosed to a competitor would be liable to cause real or significant harm to the owner of the secret provided it was used in a trade or business and the owner had either limited the dissemination of the information or at least not encouraged or permitted widespread publication. On the basis of this the financial model was considered to be a trade secret by the tribunal. It said that even if it was wrong on this point, disclosure would prejudice the commercial interests of the company because it contained confidential financial information and its unique model for calculating prices, rates of return, etc. and which would put competitors at an unfair advantage if disclosed in relation to any procurement exercise. In relation to the rest of the disputed information, the tribunal found that disclosure would harm the DWP's commercial interests. There was a causal relationship between the disputed information and future government procuring of IT services and there was a real risk to the competitive environment being prejudiced, particularly in relation to the future of the government gateway service. Turning to the public interest though, it found that the public interest balance favours disclosure of all the information except for the financial model and the data centre. With regard to the financial model, the tribunal noted the OGC guidance which recognises financial models as being confidential which normally should not be disclosed. With regard to the data centre, the DWP argued that the location of the centre would make it easier for terrorists or other criminals to locate gateway data. Also, if security specifications and other information on the layout of the centre is disclosed, it would make it easier for premises to be penetrated and data to be attacked. Therefore, there is a public interest in keeping the information secret and the tribunal agreed with this approach. That concludes episode 24 of the Freedom of Information podcast. The next podcast will be in March. Don't forget, ActNow Training is now one of the UK's leading providers of courses leading to the ISEB certificate in Freedom of Information. The next courses start in February and March and there are still a few places left. So if you'd like to know more, please email us at info at actnow.org.uk. We're now on LinkedIn as well as Twitter. You can follow us for the latest information law developments delivered for free direct to your desktop or smartphone. ActNow Training also offers an FOI helpline service. This is designed to supplement your internal FOI expertise by acting as a sounding board or signpost service for you to discuss your FOI as well as EIR requests and possible responses. Through the helpline, I'll be available to guide you through the relevant areas of law, discuss possible exemptions and how to deal with any complaints. At a time of increasing pressure on public sector budgets, the ActNow Freedom of Information Helpline is the most cost-effective solution for your FOI problems. Thank you for listening. Until the next time, goodbye.